0: the joy of just singing the first portion of psalm 95 let's now turn and i'll read from the uh, the english translation the uh, new king james version psalm 95 and this will be my text for today listen as i read god's word oh come let us sing to the lord Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is the great God and the great king above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are are his also. The sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land O come, let us worship and bow down, let us kneel before the Lord our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his land. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. When your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they saw my work. For 40 years, I was grieved with that generation and said, it is a people who go astray in their hearts and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Throughout this year, we've been asking the Lord to help us to learn to love the Psalms. It's been a very enjoyable path for us to be considering how the Psalms lead us to worship God. And it is particularly connected with worship. And I want to call your attention to that this morning, that a love for the Psalms would would be nothing unless it was connected with a heartfelt worship to the Lord. There are plenty of people who might be able to study the Psalms academically. People do that with the scriptures in, in their entirety, You could go about looking at the psalms only academically or musically, but what I want you to recognize today is that the psalms are an expression of heartfelt worship, and they lead us to worship the one true God. Just as an example, uh, throughout this journey I've been calling your attention to the fact that, that I grew up singing the psalms, something that has been near and dear to my heart. But there was a time when I was the age of, of some of you in the congregation, when I was when I was a little boy, when worship was kind of uh, kind of boring to me. And I would make sure that I, I could see the clock and and or I would look at my dad's watch as he sat beside me to see when will this be done because I was ready to go and play with my friends. didn't understand what worship was all about. And as I grew and as I learned about the gospel of Jesus Christ, worship and the Psalms took on new meaning to me. Because in God's providence, as I hope with each of you young people, that I hope that each of you is coming to understand that unless God saves you from your sins, that you're lost forever. And that was something I came to understand. And by God's grace, I came to repent and to ask Jesus to be my savior. And all of a sudden, worship became something completely different. It was an opportunity to come and to say thank you to God for saving me from my sins. This psalm does that. This psalm leads you to say thank you to God for saving me from my sins. So today as we think about Psalm 95, my invitation, my, my call to you, my urgent call to you is to say let us come into God's presence to worship him with thanksgiving. The psalm starts with what we might come to call a a call to worship. It's an invitation by God himself to come into his presence to worship him. We give him honor and glory, dominion and power. I hope you heard some of that language in the book of Revelation, where the mighty angels and the elders and the magnificent heavenly beings and all of the saints throughout all time are gathered before the throne of the Lord to worship him, to say that glory and power and dominion and majesty are due to your name. And it is God who invites us to do that. It is God who makes a way for us as sinners to come into his presence. So the psalm starts off with that invitation, with that earnest call. Oh, come. Let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. And then verse 6 repeats that call. "Oh come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. And I hope that you're struck with this, this wonderful outburst of praise that happens. The people of God both now and in the past and in heaven and in the future are all gathered together to give thankful voice to God for his many blessings. There is an eagerness to gather to worship. That comes through with that idea of the, the exclamation, Oh, come. Now uh, you might uh, think about other invitations that you've had. That's compel you to come to serve on jury or uh, or informing you of your class schedule and you're just like, oh, great. Uh, This is something completely different. This is a, a passionate appeal and an appealing appeal to come and to worship the Lord. Imagine having an invitation to dinner with your favorite person in the world. Maybe that's your favorite author or athlete that has come into town and has said, I want to have dinner with you. Maybe your spouse has invited you out on a special dinner date. Or maybe your dad or your mom has said to you, I want to take each of my children out one by one. I want to go individually with you to Brahms tonight. Will you go to Brahms with me tonight? And imagine how eager you are to accept that invitation. Now think about this. This invitation comes from Almighty God. He invites you to come to be with him in worship. Look at those first six verses And I want you to take note of the power of the poetry that this psalm uses. Throughout our series of learning to love the psalms, I've been pointing out to you some of the devices that poetry uses. And I'll do the same again. One way that the psalms call attention to a certain fact is that they'll say it again, but with different words. So there's some repetition that happens here, but... uh, like good poetry, they'll, they'll multiply the different words or the different concepts that are used. So, so just look at at the words that are used to invite you and the words that describe our worship. Oh, come, let us sing. Let us shout joyfully to him. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us worship and bow down before him. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. So just in these short verses, there's, there's expressions of, of passionate, eager praise, of singing and shouting joyfully to the Lord. It speaks about a certain, a certain posture that, that may, be, uh, may be used, of bowing before the Lord, of kneeling to him. We use this language a lot as we bow our heads before him. And, uh, and in our hearts, kneel before the Lord, our maker. These are all expressions of our worship to God. Then let me take a couple of these things and expand on the elements here. And again, in keeping with our theme, I want you to notice how singing is part of our worship. We sing. Have you ever just stopped and, and wondered about that? Why is it that we sing? I, I remember a, a book of a, of a woman in our denomination uh, uh, that was converted and she wrote her testimony in the form of a book and she said, I sing because I'm happy. Mm-hmm. Now there are other reasons why we sing, but that's one of them. And we sing in our expression of worship. And there is there is something uh, about singing that moves us to express truths both rationally and emotionally. and engages the head and the heart. I see some of you nodding. Do you know what that's like, how, how music connects with you in a way that, that does communicate a truth to you or expresses something that that you know and that you hold is true, but it expresses it in a passionate way with conviction. And that's something that, the, that singing does. It moves us to joy or sorrow and expression of those emotions. It, it leads us to cry out with, with the thrill of victory or the agony of defeat. We engage the mind... And the heart in the act of worship. Singing has this effect. Poetry has this effect. The Psalms have this effect. The Psalms and singing come together in a way that move our hearts and express rationally the truths that we hold so dear. Singing the Psalms then is a part of our worship as as a drawing near to express heartfelt worship to the Lord. The second thing under this call to worship is I want to underline the invitation to come to the Lord with thanksgiving. I hope that's a, an invitation that resonates with your with your heart as you look forward later this month to celebrate our national holiday of Thanksgiving. Now, I, I assume you all know that the Book of Psalms came well before the first Thanksgiving here in the United States. So uh, my title for this sermon, a, a psalm or a Thanksgiving psalm, has in mind uh, not just the pilgrims, and a harvest, and pumpkin pie, and a turkey. Those are all good things. But this has in mind giving thanks to God. And I say that directly because as I read different things about preparing for the upcoming Thanksgiving Day, I find that there are there are some good things that are expressed. There's a a general sense of goodwill and of of experiencing blessings. But they are all phrased in very general uh, uh, human-oriented way rather than sentiments that are expressly oriented and given to God. It's all well and good to say we are blessed, but it begs the question where do those blessings come from? And in worship, we acknowledge where that blessing comes from. We look to God, the giver of those blessings. We express our thanks in the midst of worship. It's an element that comes through in those passages we read earlier in Revelation uh, where, where in a sense the veil of heaven is drawn back and we hear and we see the worship that goes on before the throne of God and one of the elements is a giving of thanks to the Lord. It comes up in Romans chapter one as well in a sense of, uh, of, uh, of correction those who, who have seen and know that the mighty acts of God and the works of creation are condemned because they do not acknowledge God and neither do they give thanks. That worship and thanksgiving go together. And in this call to worship, there's a call to give thanks to the Lord. We come with joy to meet with him. We come to bow reverently before him to give thanks and it orients our worship around God, not around us, not around uh, uh, what, uh, what, what we are interested in. It orients our worship, our thanks to God himself and that is profound to grasp about our worship that you have an opportunity to come into the presence of a living God and to say thank you for what you have done for me, to show your gratitude for the salvation he has given to you. I'll make some applications later, but let me just pause here and urge you to nurture a sense of joy and anticipation about coming to worship. Nurture and, and, uh, and feed that by meditating on what God has done for you. Nurture it by, by warming your hearts, reflecting on what God has done for you directly. The deliverance from sin, the promise of eternal rest, the welcome into heaven that is your promise right now. These are gifts that God has given. Delight yourself in coming to say thank you to God. Nurture that throughout the week with anticipation to come and orient yourself to express your thanksgiving to God. So let me give you some reasons to worship God and give thanks. I've already started down this road. You can't help but do that. Psalm 95 has four different things that I'll call to your attention. Four different reasons to worship God and give him thanks. In the back of your bulletin, you'll see worship God and give thanks because dot, dot, dot. And so here's the first. Worship God because he is God. This comes through in verse three. The Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. It's reason enough to worship him because he is God. That's the first and fundamental reason to come and honor him. He is God and we are not. He deserves this just because of who he is. And in the short verse, the psalmist gives three different titles to him. He is the Lord. He uses the covenant name for God. The Lord who has promised to save and keeps his promise. The second title is that he is a great God. That means he's greater than all other beings, greater than us, if you need that spelled out. And he is a great king above all gods. Now, I hope you'll understand that he's not implying that there are other gods, uh, uh, real gods. He's talking about the false gods that people will make in their hearts, or literally by making a statue and saying, this is our God. Those aren't real gods. People call them gods. They're false gods. They're idols. So we worship God because he is God, and that worship is due to him alone. Secondly, we worship him because he is the creator In verses 4 and 5, you'll hear echoes of of Genesis chapter 1. He made the sea and the dry land. He is the one who created all of these things by the word of his power. The deeps are in his hands. The high places belong to him. So you have from, from down here to up here, you have from here to here, everything has been made by God. And at the pinnacle of this, at the most amazing point of creation, as verse 6 says, God made man. Come and kneel before the Lord, our maker. Worship him because he, he spoke and it was done. Out of nothing, by the word of his power, all of this was made. He's worthy of praise. Thirdly, worship him because he has redeemed you. This is actually the the first phrase let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. The rock of our salvation. It calls to mind a castle that's built on a strong, defensible position, a place that no enemy can defeat. And God is this rock of salvation. He, the Father, has sent the Son to be that rock of salvation for us. And fourth, worship him because he is our shepherd. Verse 7 says, for he is our God. We are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. See, not only did God make you, not only did God redeem you, but he, he cares for you every, every, every day. And the psalm uses a, a, a very familiar biblical analogy, that of a shepherd. And I want to, uh, to invite you to think with me as, as, as we, we try to engage with the poetry. I want you to think both with your mind and your heart, just about this one image. And you can apply it to the rest of the psalm and the different words that are used. So so first of all, use your head. Think about what a shepherd does. You can start listing. Well, a shepherd takes care of his sheep. He gives them food. He protects them from enemies. You can go on and list some of those things. But now, apply that to God. Apply that to Jesus and list the ways that 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 God has acted as a shepherd to save you. Jesus, as the great shepherd, has laid down his life for you, for his sheep. He provides spiritual food. He protects you from enemies. And you can make a, an even longer list on your own. Keep going with that. And you can rationally think of those truths that are declared about God being our shepherd. Now use your heart. How does this description move you? And again, let's start with the shepherd or maybe maybe picture the lost sheep. Think about the dark night of, of the terror of that night for a sheep that has gone astray. Then picture... Picture the shepherd going out into that dark to find the lost sheep. And then picture it being carried back to the sheepfold in the shepherd's arms. And then apply that to Jesus. Apply that to the spiritual truth that is being represented there. Remember, rem- remember that, that you were terribly lost. And maybe you are that way today. Remember that you are not only chased by wolves, but you are torn into pieces by them. Then picture the Savior Jesus Christ laying aside the glories of heaven to come as a man to save us from our sins. He says that. He says, I came to seek and to save that which is lost. I came because my sheep need a shepherd. I came and I called them by name. And I've redeemed them and laid down my life for them. And so picture yourself in the arms of Christ, safe at last. Or in picturing that, if you are still that sheep that is lost and wandering. I pray that you would hear that picture of Jesus Christ, both with your head and your heart, and that you would be moved to say, oh, Jesus, save me from my sins. Oh, Jesus, be my Redeemer. Use your head and your heart to come to this Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Let these truths move you to worship the Lord. Isn't it just right and natural when you come to terms with what Christ has done for you that you would want to come and say, thank you, Jesus? Which leads us to the last half of the psalm. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, and if you're like me, maybe reading through this the first time, you hit this division, and it's, it's like, where did that come from? What does this have to do in the midst of this glorious outburst of praise, this, this wonderful invitation into the presence of the living God? Let me show you. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. This refers to when God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. He displayed his mighty power by humbling the mightiest nation on the earth, the Egyptians. Often in physical terms, he they saw the work of the Lord in, in uh, frogs and flies. The river turned to blood, darkness and death. God demonstrated his power and brought the children of, of Israel out. And in the wilderness, as they were going to the promised land, there came a point where they needed water uh, it's it's a physical need surely it was a pressing need surely it was something that uh, that the children of israel were concerned about but in exodus chapter 17 read about what they say it says that they rebelled against Moses and against God. Is the Lord among us? Is what they said. We are thirsty. We're dying here. God has forsaken us. After all of what God had done. After he had demonstrated that power, they had just recently crossed the Red Sea and God had wiped out the the Egyptian armies and the children of Israel turned almost immediately, it feels, to begin to complain about what God was doing for them. What they perceived, what God was not doing for them. And so, what this psalm calls your attention to is the doubt, the disbelief, the rebellion that is expressed by ingratitude, by a lack of giving thanks. This place of rebellion becomes something of a byword for the children of Israel. It's a little hidden in our English translation, but if you look at verse 8, the psalmist calls it the place of rebellion and the place of trial. Uh, those, uh, that's the translation of, of names that are given in Exodus 17. And when I say them, you may recognize them. The, the place is called Meribah, and Massa, the place of rebellion, the place of trial. The psalm multiplies a description of that. It calls it a, a trial in the wilderness, a testing of the Lord, of trying him even after they saw his work, of grieving the Lord, of going astray in their hearts. God did give them answer by giving water, but he also disciplined them so that that generation, because of their unbelief, wandered in the wilderness for 40 years until all of that generation had passed away. The psalm closes with those sobering words, I have sworn in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Much more could be said about the history in the book of Hebrews uses, it, uses this passage especially to apply it to the Jews who rejected Jesus. And I want you to think about it here in this context of a call to worship. Here's why it's present. God has saved you from death itself. He has done so at the cost of the life of Jesus Christ. He hung on the cross. He bore the wrath of the Father for your sins. And As I said earlier, it is right. It is natural to express a heartfelt thanks for that. It shouldn't need to be prompted. It should well up within us. God, thank you for what you have done for us. It is unnatural then to show no gratitude. And worse than unnatural, it is to be so cold in your heart that you have no room to recognize what God has done. No room to thank him. What a stark contrast, the first half of the psalm and the second half of the psalm. Those who recognize the God of our salvation, the rock that we flee to, the shepherd that cares for us and offers thanks. And the children of Israel who came out seeing the mighty works of God and they complain It's right, as this psalm does, to call it rebellion. Now, rebellion can take many forms, but at its heart, it is a failure to worship him, worship God. It's a failure to believe. It's a failure to give thanks. And the corollary is true, too. And this gives us something of a diagnosis. I said that Rebellion is a failure to worship, a failure to believe, a failure to give thanks. Turn that around and and diagnose. A failure to worship, a failure to believe, a failure to give thanks is at its heart rebellion. And the diagnosis leads To God's judgment, so I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. With that warning in mind, let me encourage you to to diagnose yourself. Take, Take the temperature of your heart, so to speak. If it's frozen, if you are bound up in your own selfish interests, So much that you doubt God's goodness and grace, that you cannot find reason to give thanks to God. And if worship is tedious to you, then take stock of your heart. Is it so cold that you have not come to Christ? And I would beg with you to recognize the invitation that God has made to, to have salvation in Jesus Christ, to have deliverance from, from yourself, from, from the sins that tangle you up, from the wounds that have, have, have borne down your heart. Turn to Christ and find hope in him. And to those of you who are following after Jesus Christ, it's good to take stock of the temperature of your heart as well. And uh, turn up the heat, so to speak. Turn up the heat on your soul by, by meditating on what God has done for you. All throughout this month, we're going to be singing Psalm 95. The children are going to be memorizing it. Maybe you as the adults would like to do so as well because that's one way that you can turn up the heat because it leads you to to think about who God is and what he has done for you. And every day you can start the day by, by coming before the Lord and in wonder meditating on the grace of God in Jesus Christ. That he has given to you. Take time each day to meditate on your forgiveness of sins. And if that doesn't thaw your heart, I don't know what will. Turn up the heat on your heart. And so let the facts of your redemption enter your mind. And you can turn your mind in this direction every day and throughout the day. But uh, along with that, uh, stir up your heart as well and let the experience of your deliverance move you too. Nurture this type of joy. Nurture this type of anticipation in your hearts as you look forward each week to coming into the presence of the God who has saved you, the rock of your salvation, the shepherd of your souls. Come and give thanks to him. Amen. Let's pray. O God, we do bow before you with our heads and our hearts. We kneel and we ask, O God, that you would forgive us for our ingratitude. God, as we have been cold in our hearts, we ask your forgiveness for complaining against you for doubting your promises, for scorning your grace. And instead, oh God, I pray that as we meditate throughout this week and as we come together to worship, that the that the truth of our redemption would move us to worship you, to say thank you to our God and Savior. And we do so today. We give, give you praise and acknowledge Honor and glory and dominion and power and thanksgiving belong to you, our God, our King, our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're going to close with the second half of Psalm 96. It closes with this sobering warning that we sing together. Uh, we sing it and, I, and we do so so that it would speak to us. and would move us and convict us of sin if necessary. And lead us back to the first of the psalm. Come, let us worship the Lord. Let's stand and sing Psalm 96, Selection C. I say the wrong psalm? Uh, 95. 95. 95C. 95 I'm sorry. Yes, 95C.